Hey, Printavo Printhouse, welcome back to the podcast. Got a really cool episode. Bruce from Printavo here. Stephen Fair got a Campus Inc. here. This one's special. <laughs> Scott Gunslinging Fresner is here to join us. He's got some incredible stories. What what a, what a crazy hectic five years he had growing a business in the DTG space. I learned so much in this podcast. <laughs> I did not know that Scott Fresner and we were we started riffing on DTF, and he's like. You know, I brought DTG to the United States. And then, like, the basically, like, digital squeegee, he sent us a video, Bruce, after the episode of one that he brought 11 years ago and went bankrupt because of it. It was too soon for the industry. So, and uh, his cover band, Pink Floyd cover band. I love these episodes because they're just war stories. So, this is going to be a really, really good one to listen to. But before that, let's hear it from our sponsors. All right. First up, GraphX Source. If you guys need a solution to help improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, GraphX Source offers industry-leading outsourcing options to help you do this. I mean, more specifically, they're doing separations, mock-up, creative art, order management, digitizing, some office admin. They've even uh, are helping Stephen at Campus Inc. build online stores. Use Printavo Pod for fifty percent off your first vector, sep, or embroidery order. And uh, check them out, graphxsource.com. Thanks, Nick Wood and the team at Graphic Source. Bruce, think about this. How can you print high-color designs, gradients, or hard-to-print locations and a bunch more? Well, Supercolor has an amazing new guide on how to do all of this using heat transfers. It's got more info like different types of transfers, how to price, and what to even buy for a quality of heat press, which I know you've spent... Uh, the latter half of your last month with a crappy heat press um, <laughs> that you bought from... Uh, I wish that guide was out supplier. Yeah. Uh, but if you go to supercolor.com slash print hustlers uh, or the link in description, guys, uh, if you haven't heard our DTF episode that came out, um, you'll hear me without saying buy transfers, buy from Supercolor. They do a fantastic job. Printavo 15, you'll get 15% off your order. Thanks so much, Supercolor. They have got a very exciting new announcement coming in January. Um, pretty big thing coming from their end. Uh, wink, wink. And they only like, they go ham now. Like they, I'm super color. You just keep impressing me. Multi-craft, multi-craft. Other big things. Other He's big things at coming. 512 followers. Multi-craft daddy. Underscore. Dave Edgars. Yes. Multi-craft underscore daddy. Throw him a follow. Multi-craft screen printing and digital supplies for over 50 years have top brands at competitive pricing. Um, they're your supplier. I know Farig. They are just awesome with customer service and they're there to help. Make sure to mention Printable Pod. Get an extra 10% off your first order. That is super generous. Thank you, Dave. I literally, I texted Dave. I go, Dave, I need a, a Pantone book. I think we dropped ours in an ink bucket. <laughs> they just got slosh. He's like, how many do you need? And then I'm like, Dave, I need poly blocker. Yeah, what do you got? <laughs> And I just, uh, he even made a jot form for us so that we can quickly, you know, exactly what my team needs to order and it goes right to his email. So he's working on some cool things too that we'll probably start talking about. All of our sponsors are crushing it, um, but we wouldn't crush it unless we were crushing Reclaim. Um, easy way. The easiest way. Um, if you know Alex from Easy Way and his mullet, you, you know that you shouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. Easy Way's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. We use 701 and 842 at Campus Inc. Um, and yeah, they're freaking great. So hit them up, Easy Way. Um, they are certainly the easiest way 
All right, Bruce. Ready for ready for the episode? The easiest way. All right, let's jump. You're gonna work in. on a jingle. All right, <laughs> let's get it. So, Scott, um, Stephen dropped an episode from last week, uh, or that we recorded last week, but it dropped actually this morning about DTF. I'm sure you've seen heat transfers, and but more specifically, DTF machines really push into the space pretty heavily into the trade shows. Um. It's already going pretty crazy. I know Dick about DTF. <laughs> I have gotten three messages this morning already from... I got a message at 6 a.m. being like, thank you. I was thinking about buying one, and I'm going to just hold on that. <laughs> um, well, to me, there's probably the similar issues you had with DTG. You know, which maybe I'm wrong, I think you know. is super cool because that's that was your world, right? When I was doing it, everybody had problems with head clogging and blah, blah, blah. They bought a machine thinking they're going to make a lot of money doing T-shirts. And nothing has changed. It's, it's been almost 20 years. And now you go to the DTG forums. And what do you see? People bitching, people selling their machines, people pissed off at a supplier. I'm not in the picture anymore. That's the good news. So Scott Fresher's name never comes up as being the Antichrist. Okay, <laughs> so. this is really relevant. What was? Can you walk us through? So uh, everyone, this is Scott Fresner. If you don't know Scott, um, Google him. We'll, we'll give a little bit more background. But Scott, you you've been super instrumental in the industry from an education standpoint, bringing almost like early DTGs. Can we jump into the DTG side, Bruce? Yeah, and by um, the way, Scott's been in this space since is it is this correct to say 1979? Uh yeah, but I was a printer from 1970. So I actually was a printer. I had a, one of the bigger shops in the Phoenix wow. area. And uh 50 years. I got ti- I got I got tired of it and uh it's funny when I sold my shop, most of my contract customers called me, "Well, can you teach us how to do it?" That's how the that's how the book evolved and my from the supply side and training side evolved was customers calling me and saying, uh, what gear should I buy? You know, this was the day when I think Hopkins and Richardson were the only presser you could get. So you typically you'd buy a, a Riley Hopkins and Riley and I became really good friends, but, but I was a printer for years. I mean, I run, I was running 24 hour shifts. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I, I love when we get to talk to y'all because the war stories and the battle scars, this is like, so Oh yeah, I have both. I have both. This might yeah. have to be a multi-part episode. Cause I feel like we can yeah. go down some rabbit holes. Um, but I'm ready, Scott, you have, you know, T biz network. Um, my business partner gave me one of your DVDs when I first started. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you're one of those guys. Yeah, and he's like, and I, and is, you know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So Scott, can we talk about that DTG real quick? What did you What did you do that was instrumental in the DTG world? I brought it to the market. I people think of me, I think, as being the godfather of DTG, but I didn't invent it. Obviously, the ancient printer, uh, a guy named Mark Mobarnquet. I never get Mark's last name right from uh, Belquet. Uh, Mark and his brother uh, invented, and I think, and patented a uh, ink jetting on fingernails called Imaginail. And so, around 2003, Mark came up to my booth at a show. I didn't know Mark; he didn't know me, but and he didn't know the T-shirt business. Uh, but he he smelled uh, opportunity. He came up and says, "Hey, what if you could ink jet directly on a shirt? Would you have an interest in partnering with us?" And of course, being Scott Fresner, looking for opportunities, I'm the ultimate serial entrepreneur. Yeah, let's talk. And so uh, Mark was the one that introduced me. And so I'll give Mark the, the credit for being the, the guy. And uh, uh, we decided that because Mark at that time didn't have any money, that I would finance the deal. And what, when was this, Scott? That, 2003. Okay. Bruce, you were 10? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just about. Back then. So um, nice. uh, Mark approached me and being the entrepreneur, I wanted to do... Um, 
control everything. You know, entrepreneurs want to be in charge and want to do it all. So Mark and I made a deal and uh, he was going to build the machine, a prototype, and I gave him an Epson, I don't know, 1800, not the R1800, but back then the 1800. I got him, I sent him a printer down to Florida. Uh, and then months went by and, you know, Mark's a great guy. He's an engineer, not as good of a marketer, I don't think, but he's an engineer and he was working on the machine. So we go down to the Tampa show and I go to Mark's house and there's this very rudimentary on a coffee table machine printing on, I think wood. He didn't even have a shirt to print on and, uh, but it looked okay. But in the beginning, I wanted to control the ink sales. I knew that this was no different than Epson wants to sell you a printer for cheap and then sell you ink. And my ink business was, at the end, was four or five million dollars a year in ink. And wow. so I wanted to control the ink. And Mark said, uh, no, I've been talking to his brother and, and they want to handle the ink. And the deal for me. And so I went back home and started online and found a company in Japan called Mastermind who had a machine that would print on wood and on non-textiles. And uh, sent them a note and they sent me who their agent was in Los Angeles. Two weeks later, I had a machine. I, I spent, I think, 800 bucks air freighting because the, I, the SGIA show now in 2004 was coming up, and I wanted to have a machine there. And I had a machine in August, I think it was, 2004, and we showed our first machine in October of 2004. And um, so I, I brought it to the market. That's all I did. I mean, I'm just a good – I'm an entrepreneur – uh, pretty good technician, and I'm the guy that just said, you know what, there's a market there. And uh, we were at one time buying easily a thousand machines a year from Mastermind. Wow. Uh, I went over to visit them twice in Tokyo. They were actually in the, the uh, whatever city Epson is in. It's outside of Tokyo. Took the bullet train, and uh, they were running 24 hours a day making machines for Scott. We were air freighting them in. We were How did so you many. find them as a company? Oh, you know, uh, did they have a website or, you know, they were, uh, you know, back then, uh, internet was, you know, it was, you could search and it was, I think, was it Yahoo back then or not? Before Yahoo. It's like Geo Yeah. No, it was, uh, who was, who was before Yahoo? Whoever the internet guys was Netscape. internet solutions or whatever. Netscape. I think, anyway, I found them through a web search and I didn't know who they were. They just had a machine that they, and they didn't know what they had. They sold Got the it. machine just to print on, on flat stock. Uh, they didn't know T-shirts. Uh, they sent me, uh, when they sent me the machine, they had experimented with their ring to hold shirts down. So they had played with it, but they didn't know shirts. So I made a deal mm -hmm. with their agent and with them to be the exclusive. Uh, I could, they could only sell to me for T-shirt printing. It was for North and South America. So I spent millions with Mastermind. I mean, it was... Those guys were cranking. I mean, I had a warehouse full of machines. You know, we would we would sometimes be sitting on a hundred machines, and we were paying five hundred bucks a machine to air freight them in because we couldn't wait to put them on a boat and put them in a container and have them float. Or, you know, we 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 were wow. Selling machines so you right really left. you brought it to the world then because so China wasn't even DTGing on fabric then. No, yeah, they didn't know what t-shirt. I mean, there's people doing roll to roll printing on fabric. Sure. So the problem was the ink and. Uh, I knew a guy named Grant French. Grant French at one time was my, one of my dealers. He lived in uh, Temecula, California, and Grant uh, sold my uh, my rip, sold my fast films. Uh, he went to work for DuPont. I'm online searching, and I find DuPont has an ink called Artistry for their roll-to-roll -roll printing. Worked on fabric, worked 100% cotton. 
I didn't know Grant even worked for DuPont at that time, but I knew Grant for years. So I contact DuPont. I'm looking for ink for a small format <clears throat> desktop inkjet printer. Uh, will your ink work? And they're coming back, well, it probably will work. We think it'll work. It works on the high, the high performance inkjet heads. Uh, let, me contact, let me get you in touch with our rep, <laughs> who was Grant French. Hmm. And so all of a sudden I had a source. And so they sent me some ink to try. They put it in some Epson, Epson cartridges. I put it in the printer. This works. <laughs> I remember it was like, you know, one of those in your life, you have those Nirvana moments. Ah! And we were like, wow. And so we washed the shirts. They washed pretty good. Uh, the print quality was okay, but it was ink shitting on a shirt. Uh, my son, Michael, says, well, let's print it twice. What do you mean print it twice? Well, let's see if we can print it again. But, um, ah! you know, the print was magnificent. You know, so now I had an ink source. And uh, so we were selling the hell out of machines and uh, everybody's going, will it print on a black shirt? And I'm, we're like, no way. We even tried putting plastisol on an inkjet cartridge. You know, we knew nothing about inkjet printing. We were so, so this was only on light colored garments, only on light colored garments. I wish no, pre, no pre treat. Yeah, no, that's a different story. <laughs> I'll tell you this. So. We thought if we could just maybe even do a sublimation. And by the way, uh, the history is at the SGIA show in October of 2004. I remember these things vividly. Minneapolis, Cornet had th their first machine. You know, the big blue, it was like a tank, you know. And we had our little tiny desktop machine. And who do you think's booth was the busiest? <laughs> Scott Fresners. <laughs> Everybody's going $180,000 for that machine for Cornet, and I'm selling mine for $12,000. So they figured they could piss away twelve grand, put it on their credit card, and buy a machine. And Cornet was, was teasing people that they were going to have white ink on a dark shirt. They were showing a sample that I think was, was fake, and they were going to have it down the road. Uh, and by the way, to really give credit where it's due, Matt Rome, who's been around for years, uh, Matt Rome brought a machine out in 1996. That's a long time before me. And he showed it at a show and he was promising white ink and all this stuff. And the machine was dog meat slow. But Matt Rome really was the one. I'll give Matt and Mark Mombarquette credit for they kind of. I remember Matt Rome's booth was swamped at 1996. People. I remember Mark Vassilotone calling me from a Vastex. Is it over? <laughs> this is after seeing Matt Rome's machine. <laughs> is Inkjet going to kill screen printing? And I'm not, I don't think so, Mark. Not quite yet. You know, <laughs> Wait, but, Matt's machine was, you know. What, what <laughs> happened then when you brought it out, right? So, so, like, was this new technology to the space or were people aware of it and were able to digest it? No. Did you have to educate the space? Like, how, how did that I, commercialization yeah, I did. work? I had to educate it and... You know, everybody looked at it and went, wow, do I sell my equipment? I even thought I was going to kill screen printing. I had my head up my rear end thinking that, well, this is it. Screen printing is dead. Uh, but we had to uh, educate the space, and people looked at it as being nirvana. Uh -huh. No color separations, no screens to make. You know, sure. you put a shirt on and print a button. What could, what could go wrong? And so we sold the hell out of machines for white shirts. No head clogging. It's a, pig, it's a, 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 a yeah, pigment ink. The heads didn't clog. It, it, people loved it. I had one guy that did 50,000 shirts on his little $11,000 machine from Scott Fresner. And so, but we kept going, got to print on a black shirt. You know, how, how can we do that? I remember vividly in a meeting at DuPont, because I was at DuPont on a regular basis. I was spending so much money with those guys. And I'm going, you need to make white ink. And DuPont's answer was, that'll never happen in your lifetime, Scott. Well, what if, what if it could? <laughs> and they kind of go with, they came back with, well, well, what if we could? 
how big is that space? And uh, everybody in the meeting is going, it'll never happen. Could never you happen. give a little background on why it's incredibly hard to manufacture like white ink through an inkjet printer and like the, because there is some, there's something there that's like special, right? Like what makes that white ink so special? Oh, uh, there's two special things. One is the ink and one's, one's the pre-treat. Uh, the ink has what's called TI, TiO2, which is titanium dioxide. That's a very gritty pigment. And so after DuPont, and I'll, 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 I'll answer your question here. After DuPont said, well, we could never make it. A guy in the meeting was a guy named Scott Ellis. He was a chemist and one of their, one of their chemists. And he was in this meeting being real quiet. I go home and Scott calls me. You know, I've been thinking about it, he says. You know, because DuPont was the king of white. They, they sold white paint and to the car industry. They were the kings of TiO2, which makes the white. And Scott says, I think I can make it, uh, but they'll have to pre-treat the shirt. Oh, crap. Screeners will hate it. They will not want to pre-treat. He says, well, you know can't pre-treat a shirt, it's not going to work. The, the pre-treat is like a yin-yang to the ink. So it, it kind of holds the ink off. And if I can pre-treat the shirt, it lays a base down that blocks the shirt and it'll go on the pre-treat. Okay. He says, I'm off the books. They don't want to put any money into this. They don't want to put any money in R&D. He says, but I think I can make something for you to test. <laughs> and you know me. That's Scott uh, DuPont. When can I have it? When can I have it? This is Scott DuPont. Scott, and he's on yeah. the first patent, Scott Ellis. Uh, when can I have it? <laughs> well, I'll make some goop. Uh, he sent me this stuff and a little, and the, the, the uh, pre-treat. And we put the pre-treat in a spray bottle, like a little perfume sprayer. We didn't know, you know, spraying down the shirt, put the white ink in the printer, printed. It's gray, but <laughs> I'm thinking, that's a good start. You know, it's not dead white. And so the, the secret was the pre-treat. I mean, even today, I thought 18 years ago, by now, we would have way more guys doing pre-pre-treated shirts. You got uh, uh, ready, RTP. ready, uh, RT, uh, yeah, you got, uh, I forget his name. Guys, don't, don't kill me. Sandmar's uh, got one. Yeah. So it was, was pre-treat though big in other industries? Like, like, cause how, oh, yeah. how do you think about, yeah, yeah. okay. So the this was like in guy. other industries, this is huge, but it was not nothing. in it was nothing. apparel yet. Okay. Not in the apparel. M- most fabric is treated. That's digitally like roll to roll is treated, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So it was no big deal. So, so I thought, well, this will be the, the t-shirt. I know screeners, screeners want to keep the steps to a minimum as best they can. They don't want to have, they don't know inkjet printers. You know, I didn't know inkjet printers. And so it, I thought, oh, this will be, this will be the killer. No, it wasn't the killer. We, we, uh, I vividly remember, I have all these things in my mind. You know, how sometimes when somebody calls you and says, hey, so-and-so's died. You remember that in your mind. I remember going to, uh, ISS in, uh, Dallas, no, Fort Worth. In uh, 2006, we we went for a year not with no white ink. You know, we were selling the hell out of it. We but everybody says, "Can I print on a black shirt?" Uh, there was uh, Dupont says you can't show the white ink because we are waiting for the patent uh, application to be approved. Crap! And what this year was that? Show, 2006. Okay, I want to show white ink, and they go, "You can't do it." But we think the application will come through and be signed off on. We're at the show at 10 o'clock in the morning on opening day, DuPont, because we're ready to show white. Right. DuPont calls me. Okay, you can show it. <laughs> got and, it. Uh, oh, yeah, we thought, oh, man, this is it. This is the brass ring, you know. We didn't realize that at that point, because they warned me the TIO2 will probably clog the head. You know, I, being the entrepreneur, you you don't listen to some of these things. You, 
Oh, that's okay. I can get, I can get over that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you <laughs> know, it, it it'll work it out. Somebody will figure it out. Scott Ellis will figure it out for me. And so um, we thought this was going to be it. And we sold tons of machines, but the white ink did clog heads. Uh, the white ink would settle. The TiO2, the particle, would settle in the cartridge and settle in the container. And so if people didn't keep their machine maintained, so we would tell people, as they do now, you have to maintain the machine. You got to clean the head. You got to, you know, at night, cap it, whatever. We did all that. Nobody listened. You know, it was, as you guys know from going to shows, it was mom and pop going, holy crap, mom, this is going to be great. You know, we can start a little sure. part-time business and they're working day jobs and the machine would sit for a week. And so that was our customer, even though we warned them in advance, put it in the manual, bold print. People didn't want to do it. So did you changed. sell to yeah. hobbyists? Did you sell to hobbyists and then it rolled into commercial? Was it like hobbyists first, do you think? No, it was both. It was both. There was the screeners who yeah. thought, oh, this is going to be it. I'll piss away eleven or 15,000 bucks then and I'll, I'll buy one of these See machines works. and try it. And, we, and I still get people today that say, Scott, I bought one of your machines back then and I love it. And then I got people that I posted something last week on one of my, um, my websites and somebody posts to F off. I know that was the guy that bought a DTG machine. Really? I mean, there's people out there that 18 years later think I'm the Antichrist, that I took their money and I screwed them and ripped them off. And we were taking a, a desktop printer that was kind of not a toy, but, you know, not like what we have now and making it work as a commercial printer. And that was probably a mistake. So you know? what what issues? So on the podcast that I just put out, we just put out yesterday, we talked about um, support for it. We talked about, you know the distributors not really fi- they're still figuring it out as they go it might not be ready for the industry yet um what kind of early problems did you have in your first couple of years like were there any like uh oh we have a recall on this entire batch of ink or like we had that the- we had that yeah we had that uh a company called Roman Haas, I think they're still in business, big ink company. Uh, they approached me that they could make ink and maybe a little less than DuPont. And I didn't want to be totally married to DuPont because DuPont gave me on the white a, a – uh, I wanted an exclusive. I'm the guy that brought him to the market. Uh, they gave me a six-month uh, market edge, they called it, meaning I had an exclusive for six months. And I knew that would that would dry up. So Roman Haas uh, – approached me they showed me some white it looked great uh we shipped but we bought it we shipped a ton of it and next thing you know heads are clogging everywhere we replaced probably a thousand print heads on our own dime wow and so uh the problem again was a, a screener i think is mechanical a screen printer he, he knows how to make a screen and he can print and printing is pretty mechanical i think you know you follow some rules and you get it tight and you know it's it, it's to teach in my class that if you're going to fail it's gonna be because you can't you can't run business It'd be the marketing. It's not going to be because you can't print a shirt. And so our customer was someone who wasn't into inkjet printing. Even now, if your inkjet printer doesn't print, what do you do? You kind of freak out. You do a head cleaning on your in your desktop printer. You, you aren't inkjet guys. You don't know how to take the printer apart. And we're telling people, well, you got to replace the print head. And they're going, what? And you got to take the head out. You got to take the machine apart, take off all these parts. They don't want to do that. That's That's why today, even with the DTF, it's no different. A lot of these machines are still desktop printers that people are, you know, in China and Japan are modifying and using, you know. I mean, even today, look at Omnijet and all those guys, Freejet. All those guys are st- still taking off-the-shelf inkjet printers and repurposing them, you know. Those, those first, like, three years or so, you know, you doing this and being the first one to market, it sounds like, and, and, and educating the space – 
that's a lot, right? I, and, and I think there's principles out there that say, or strategies, it's like, you do not want to be the first one because educating <laughs> well, is so expensive back, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and costly. Was the business, do you remember if the business was profitable, though, being the first mover? Because then you could also be the first mover and have the biggest brand because uh, you're the it de was, facto, uh, but... It was profitable because of the ink sales. It's no different than the Epson theory. You know? yeah. uh, we ended up, uh, we ended up uh, DuPont licensed us for the pretreatment. The, by the way, the pretreatment we discovered after we got our license. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they sell it for now, 30 or $40 a gallon. I haven't looked at prices. We, we could make it for a buck fifty a gallon. It's wow. no different than, than it's no different than drugs or whatever where the, the the hard costs are so small. It's the marketing costs that are so big. Uh, so we were making fifty five gallon drums of pre treat and paying Dupont a few bucks per gallon on a license. Uh, so the ink was the big deal. And in the beginning, when we were selling non white printers, we were making a lot of money. Uh, we went from being a small five hundred thousand dollar a year company selling fast films and. And then I, then I developed the RIP. The RIP was kind of our cash cow because we were selling the film. And I was the first to really be the one to bring RIPs to the market. I, I like to say I've been the first to my whole life, you know. And so we were the first to do that. And that was that's helped us finance the DTG business. I eventually turned my back slowly on the RIP business because I was so into DTG, and that was a mistake. Hmm. I got behind with my with my uh, suppliers on on the film because I was putting all the money in DTG. But we went from being five hundred thousand dollar company to a million dollar company to like a five million dollar company the next Wait, year. In what time? In the next year? The next year. The next year to being an eleven million dollar company, <laughs> and then in two and then in two thousand six. We were Inc. Magazine's 512. I didn't make the 500. We were the 512th fastest growing company. And we were their 12th, believe it or not, 12th in the U.S. fastest growing manufacturer in 2006. Wow. And we were doing, uh, in 2006, we did $21 million in sales. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and wait, what, what was the split in that revenue? Do you remember? Between Rip and mean? Rip. Oh, probably. Fifteen million in in T jets and and the rest of it was fast films and film and rips and stuff. We were on a roll. Now we all know that in this industry, in the last few years, there's been other guys like Scott who have grown real fast. And I've always warned these guys because I've been there. I says you be careful your growth. You I always tell people you make a decision today when you're growing fast that you think is absolutely the right decision, and a year later you're going, what the hell was I thinking? And so there's some guys now that have taken a fall that are humbled, can't name names, but I've warned them, you know, I've been there. You, you just think you can kill. You're just on a roll. You know, I, so, I'm, so, I'm very honest about it. I, screw, I made mistakes. Mistakes were made is always what I tell people. So, so. what kind of happened to the business? Because like, okay, when I got into the space, it was like Brother and Epson, right? Like those were basically yeah. the, the two. Where, where did you, you know, did it, was it a matter of like Epson just started really engineering on it? And like, wh- how, how did that happen? No, um, at the, at that show I told you about, uh, Minneapolis, SGIA, it was Corn Eden and, uh. And me, uh, but a friend of mine who was a printer happened to be very close with Brother, and he had already told me Brother was in beta. Brother didn't have a machine there, but they were beta testing, and he had a non-compete. This guy, but he told me everything that Brother was doing, and it was just a, nice to know. And I wasn't so worried because I'm 
I'm Scott Fresner. I'm well known in the t-shirt business. Nobody knows brother. They think your brother for being there, you know, maybe a embroidery machine or something. And so I wasn't worried about brother. And DuPont uh, was selling me ink, and I didn't worry about Epson. I was buying almost tractor trailers full of Epson printers. We would rip them apart for the for the engine. I wasn't worried about that. Uh, but then brother came out, and brother had a very Solid model, no white ink. I mean, they would they would hammer us at shows. You can't print white, and we go, well, what do you think of this shirt? We show up a shirt with a black shirt with white print, and but brother would tell people, oh, it's not ready for the market. And so brother had a nice business model that was just, you know, old established. We're just gonna we're gonna wait till it's right for the market. And my mistake was I'm at Dupont one day, and uh, they had a big roll to roll machine called the uh, the uh, I want to say the artistry. That was the ink. It was a roll-to-roll. It had 16 industrial printheads. It's a lot of printheads. Two, rail, two rails. <laughs> and if, if, I don't know if when you edit this thing, I have a video of that, that, that it's a thing of beauty. This thing is going, <laughs> printing four shirts at a time, and shirts are just coming off this machine. And my machine had heat presses to, if you watch what's going on now, it had heat presses to smash the fibers down. We were working on inline pre-treating. It, it was going to be the thing. The market wasn't ready for it. White ink was still selling back then for $300 a liter, and I misjudged it. I thought, well, the average large guy is going to go, well, I'll make it up the cost of the ink in no separations, no screens, minimal prepress. That'll offset the high cost of ink. Totally wrong. The, the large hmm. contract printers. I had one of my, those machines, a DuPont machine that sold for $300,000. I had one of them in uh, Cafe Press. <clears throat> I had one of them in Fortune Fashion. Uh, I had, I think, two or three others Cafe in big companies. Press. I yeah, yeah. Cafe Press. Yeah, Cafe Press. Go figure that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Print on demand. Are they yeah. still around? That's, I don't know. I don't know. That's but their website's live, but yeah, who knows? I know. <laughs> but they were the guys. Yeah. You know, if you think back, those were the guys. But I had machines in all those places because they thought, wow, this is it. They hated it. They were not inkjet guys. You know, they didn't want to have to build a... Uh, a hood around the machine to keep the humidity level up. You know, they're, they're, the machines are out in the screen print shop. They got, they're right next to a dryer, and it's dry out there. And so that was a mistake. I spent millions. I took that machine to, I think, five shows at a cost of probably two or three, maybe $20,000 per show just to get the machine there and get it hooked up and the freight. Nobody wanted it. It was too soon. Now you go to the show, what do you see? <clears throat> you see digital squeegee, all the things that we wanted to do but Digital Squeegee has the right idea that you're going to screen print the, pla the, the white underbase. Well, plastisol's cheap or whatever, you know. And now you've got other guys that are showing inkjet in the white ink. Well, inkjet, the white ink's still expensive. But So I'm, I, I screwed up. Uh, what I say earlier, mistakes were made because I really misjudged <laughs> the market. I, I thought— I mean, there's a chase there. Yeah, you're chasing it, right? Like I was, and I was always afraid somebody behind me, you know, like Epson was— you know, when, when Epson—I heard from Epson they were going to bring out their own machine. Uh, I'm like— what the hell? I, you know, I, so that that shocked me. And then brother came out with white ink. And uh, it was a fun ride. And I made a lot of money, but I lost a lot of money. And at the end of the day, uh, we ran out of money. When was the that? Bank called, the, the bank in 2008. Oh, my gosh. So wait, so this, I mean, because this whole story was 2003 it's like to a five-year sprint. Yeah, yeah. This it is like boom, a boom, lifetime boom. worth of stories in, in oh, five years. This could be a, a screen printing Netflix docuseries. These stories are... <laughs> Yeah. Like we were listening to Behind Mark, we were talking about printing for Apple, 
and this is just like this is awesome. Um, I know this is, it's, yeah, uh, behind, it was a fun ride. Egg. Wait, so yeah. so all right, so oh eight comes. Um, you know what? Twenty Actually, million before, or so hey, plus. Hold, hold, hold your thought before you, because you had mentioned that even today in your podcast the other yesterday, talking about dealers not being ready and stuff like that. We had the same issues, but here, look, we're eighteen years later, and the same issues are going on where the dealers don't know dick about ink shedding they're selling machines to people that shouldn't buy them i'm sure for dtf and so i'm sitting back with dtf going well <laughs> this is deja vu <laughs> yeah so, pipe. anyway so i'm sorry bruce i didn't mean to cut you off but, no uh, no it's uh it's good it's, so like you talk about you you ran out of cash what do you mean well we were spending so much money uh, on the big machine we called it our our t-jet pro or whatever taking it to shows and working on it and shipping to people like Cafe Press, which I put the machine in on consignment just to see if they'd like it. Uh, uh, Zazzle bought a machine. I, went to, I go to Zazzle, and Zazzle had a machine there. And the, and uh, we were selling Zazzle. Oh, I think we sold Zazzle one year. One year. It's, a, that's, it's, it's a, like a lifetime, this four or five years. But I think yeah. in 2007, Zazzle's probably spent a million and a half with me on ink, just, just ink alone. Uh, but we were just pissing away money, you know, trying to get the big machine going. Cause we, we thought it was going to be Nirvana, you know, again, the brass ring. And, uh, and then we were, uh, sales were declining because there was a uh, brother was eating into us a little bit. Uh, there was bad karma. People thought Scott Fresner was the antichrist because they bought a machine for me, you know, two years ago. And now it's a, it, now it's a boat anchor. And, uh, so it's a little bit of blowback in the industry. And we had a 25,000 square foot building. We had, you know, we had infrastructure. We had 90 employees at one time. You know, we had, I like to joke and everybody, you know, we had rent, you know, we had overhead. People look at, see that you, you paid whatever for a drug, you know, hundred bucks for a little bottle of pills. Yes, but there's marketing involved. You know, there's, there's salesmen involved, you know, as you guys know. And mm -hmm. so, uh, slowly we started getting tight for money and, uh, the bank called the line of credit. And it was oh because it was around oh eight as well when they were all a little no they wanted their money and you know, we had a line of credit to you know because sometimes you get but with you the housing crisis months. too it sounds like the timing was yeah. well off if you remember two thousand eight we were getting really in a cash crunch early in two thousand eight and as, as the as the year went on. Uh, and if you recall, in October of 2008, the entire economy crashed. That's when the Lehman Brothers guys, Lehman guys are jumping out of windows and uh, the election, Obama's coming into to a total housing crisis, you know, and you couldn't borrow money. Nobody was loaning any money in Oct after October of 2008. It was a total cluster F. And so... Uh, we started getting tight for money and we started to look around that maybe we would sell it. Now, in fairness, and I don't think this is, a, I don't think I have an NDA on this. I've talked to people about it. Uh, a year earlier, Stalls was going to buy us. And I've known Ted Stahl for years. I mean, I've been in this business so long that, you know, I know all these guys. And uh, one day his, uh, his C, uh, CEO walked in my door because his daughter was going to Arizona State University or whatever. And says, uh, you know, we're looking to, for acquisitions. People don't know. Stalls owns a lot of companies. Those guys have, you know, there's a lot of companies that people aren't quite aware that Stalls is the one that owns them. Uh, and so they come and, uh, are you guys for sale? Uh, sure, why not? <laughs> we come up with a number. And uh, in the nine months of due diligence, 
We got. I, I wouldn't say we got jacked around because again, Ted's a good a good friend, and I'm not banging on him. But they were doing their homework. In the nine months, we lost the exclusive with Dupont because the time ran out on the white ink. Uh, we lost our vendor Mastermind because Mastermind had a deal with me to be the exclusive for T-shirts in North and South America. And next thing I know, Mastermind is selling through a guy in Australia to uh, Cole Desi, uh, Scott uh, Coleman. And Florida, and I'm not banging on Scott. I, I love, he's a nice guy. So I'm just saying that this is how it evolved. And we go to a show, and what is it? There's a machine just like ours. What? That's our machine. It's a mastermind. You could tell. You could smell it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're buying it from a guy in Australia. So mastermind comes over, and this is probably one of the rudest things I've ever done. I shouldn't tell this story, but mastermind, you know, the Japanese, very, very, you know, let's have a bow. Here's your gift. And they give us a gift, and I told them to F off. I didn't take the gift. And that would be a total in, insult to a, a Japanese person. And uh, we said, "You guys effed us, you know, and we're not going to buy from you." That was the that was the number that was the number one thing that was our downfall. Was I I told my end, my vendor to to f off, and uh, we started to make our own machine locally in Phoenix, and it was a piece of crap. <laughs> so so we were taking machines back. Running out of money, but the big machine, you know, taking at the shows, and you know, so we're trying to sell. And then stalls goes at the last. We, we're at the signing table with stalls, by the way. After nine months, we are at the attorney's offices. Everyone's there, and stalls is going. You know, we're we're getting nervous. You don't really own any uh, any IP. You don't own the machine. You're having somebody make it. You you don't own the Epson engine. You don't have the white ink. We're gonna pass. <laughs> mm. We told them. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> Be yeah, arrogant. Scott Fresno was a, like a, uh, uh, what do you call I mean, like the guy in the Wild West movies with the, like walking around with the two guns and the, uh, yeah. but, but that is, that is some of the most nerve wracking months, right? That's your livelihood. Like Bruce, you guys were in due diligence. That's, that's, I remember you like yeah. burning you midnight know, oil. You know. It's so much. Listen, the, the, the stalls deal was so firm. We thought they bought the building next to my building and we put a hundred thousand oh, wow. so dollars down close. on a building that was next to that because it was going to be a nice a stalls. We're going to bring in and do heat press. Now stalls has a warehouse now in Phoenix. And again, I'm not banging on stalls. They were smart. I look back and go, Ted stall would have been a couple years later going, can I get the money back? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I give them kudos for that. Uh, but we, we had put a hundred thousand dollars, which we lost by the way, because we, it, we, we didn't get the deposit back stalls bailed on the building that they had put money down on the building next to us. So it was, it was a we fought in our mind this is a done deal you know we're going to ride off wow. into the sunset with our 15 million dollars that we were going to sell the company for and uh, everybody's going to make money the kids will make money life will be great was this in 08 as well or is it the end of 07? this was in uh this was late 07 okay wow so because of that i don't know if you, how you know but this I, is all coming I've ever to a head it's like there's yeah, so many well, factors here uh that are playing well, at the same time stalls yeah, uh, vendors is this um, the first time this story is recorded i feel like this is like i'm just sitting like taking yeah, this all i've told like, it on different cow. parts of it to different uh i did the shirt show uh with uh i can't remember their names i forget Shots yeah shirt we show. don't really like them either yeah anyway anyway uh, I've, I've told uh, yeah i at, at my age I, just, I turned 75 three months ago, two months ago. I figured, and, and, you Ooh, know, I can still rock and roll. Birthday. You know, we're going to talk about that, too, for sure. We have to talk about rock and roll a little bit. But um, right. so, so we're, we're, getting, we're getting tight for money. And uh, 
we had all these employees and sales were declining. And so, and then the economy was kind of slowly crashing, uh, middle of 2008, things aren't great, but it hasn't totally, you know, been D-Day. And so I hear that a company called Hirsch <clears throat> uh, had money in the bank and were looking for an acquisition. And uh, I heard that from my, uh, my, uh, my wife's cousin, Dan Axelson, who worked for Workhorse. And that's a whole other story. Some of these guys would not be in business if it wasn't for me. Your I, wife's telling you. cousin worked for Workhorse? Yeah, well, uh, Dan worked. Yeah, he worked for us for years, and then uh, uh, I brought them oh, to the okay, party. Okay. Got it, got it. I brought so workers. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I uh, those guys, they were just a machine shop. Uh, so I call up Hirsch, and I get a hold of a guy named Paul Gallagher. Paul's still at the shows. We don't, we don't talk, <laughs> but uh, and we were getting, uh, we were getting desperate. The bank uh, called our line of credit, and. You know, the, the bank lady who was really not a nice lady, she comes over to the, we have a 25,000 square foot building with all the manufacturing. She brings over an auctioneer. That that freaked me out. You know, an auctioneer, what he's looking at, he's looking at a nickel on the dollar, a nickel, a dime on the dollar. You know, what can I get to liquidate these guys? And, and when they call your credit, how long do you have to pay it back? <laughs> is, that a per, is that a personal question? No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> week, a week or two, because you gotta, you gotta, you either make, need to a make it week? right. Yeah. I thought I mean, it'd like 30, 60, 90. I mean, uh, I, I forget. It may have been thirty days, but but it wasn't long, and we knew that okay. it wasn't gonna happen. It wasn't gonna happen. We could, we couldn't cure it, and so uh, oh, the banks. You know, wow. we were at the bank for years, and we, you know, we were. You know, I, I always thought we were not a huge company, even when we were doing twenty-one million. But we were. The banks would come over. They they they'd wine us and dine us. You know. Do you remember how much that line was for? It wasn't a lot, million and a half. I mean, in our in, in the grand scheme, <laughs> it wasn't. I look back and go, yeah, you write a check, but I couldn't. So the bank comes and they, you know, this was a real hard ass. She was probably in the liquidation department or something, you know. And uh, so she comes over and with the auctioneer, and then she starts pressing. And so we tell Hirsch, we got to do a deal, you know. And Hirsch is going, well, uh, we'll give you. Uh, <laughs> Don't laugh at this now. <laughs> we'll give you $10,000. <laughs> what a small amount of money. Uh, for 80%. But our problem was we had a lot of customers in that had deposits on machines. And we, we, didn't wanna, we don't want to screw anybody. Vendors mm -hmm. get, get screwed at, at times. It's not, not, you know, I hate to say it, but that happens. But a customer who sends you money, mom and pop, and buys prepays for a machine, we probably had 50 orders in-house, you know. And so wow. Hirsch goes, uh, but we'll put in $2 million in your company. Well, that was music to my ears. You know, it would give us cash flow. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the bank. Hirsch was a uh, very aggressive, their bookkeeper, very aggressive, can I say, pushy lady from New, New Jersey who was just uh, in your face. We're going to make a deal. <laughs> you know, she tells the bank, we're going to make a deal. <laughs> we'll buy the note, but it's only going to be for you know, $500,000 are these guys are going to go. <laughs> and so the bank said, okay. And so uh, they bought the bank note and they uh, uh, bought 80% of the company. But the plan was to then grow the company and flip it. So Scott and Pat Fresner in a couple of years would have a $50 million company that we would sell. That was, a, it was, it sounded good on paper, you know, and the, and the customers would get their machine shipped. Uh, and then what happened was in, uh, October of two, we did the deal in August 2008. In October, the economy crashed. 
Hirsch was a publicly traded company. It was like on the penny stock market. Mm. I think their stock was a quarter or whatever. Uh, and so the economy crashed. They had put money in, though, and we were able to ship machines. They treated us like a stepchild. They were also a uh, uh, Mamaki dealer. Mamaki was trying to sell a machine for printing on shirts. Uh, they were a Cornet dealer. Uh, and so they put money in, but slowly it just it just eroded. You know, where, yeah, it where sales were down, they quit putting wow. money in, and you couldn't borrow money. A lot I'm sure of their our, valuation uh, tanked, and it, it did. Oh yeah, they were down to a nickel. I used to call Paul and say, "Look at your stocks down to a nickel today." You know, yeah, I know. I don't even look at that. Yeah, uh, but uh, it became uh, nobody could borrow money. I mean, our customers many times would lease a machine. You couldn't get a lease, and if you, you may maybe you weren't in doing your businesses then, but back in October, November, December, January of 2008, 2009, nobody could borrow money. And so our sales went from some months to $2 million a month down to $100,000. You know, well, I got 90 employees. I got payroll. I got rent. And so it just slowly, slowly evolved to where there was no money. And uh, in April, I vividly remember this, of course, because uh, uh, Hearst, uh <laughs> decided to liquidate. <laughs> now, the inside story, which I don't think I've ever told anybody. Maybe I have. Scott and Pat Fresner <laughs> owned the building. We, we owned the building. We kept the building. That was part of the deal. We were the landlord. Ah, Always on the dirt. Go. Always on the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we were the landlord. And the Steve rent was $16,000 a month. And because uh, it was 25000 on two and a half acres in an industrial park. And uh, we're thinking... And they're not paying the rent. My company, I'm the, CEO, I'm the CEO still, but my wife is no longer involved. And we're not paying the rent to my wife, you know, Scott and Pat Fresner, the landlords. And uh, there was a couple months rent due. And uh, we're telling Hirsch, you know, we need more money. You know, you own 80%. You're the, you have controlling interest in this company. You need to pony up and pay the rent, you know. And uh, they didn't. So uh, we locked our own company out. You evicted them, huh? huh. <laughs> okay. Huh. F you. <laughs> so we uh, locked the doors, told the employees, uh, it's a lockout. There's no work today. And we were so smart back then, you know. What we failed to realize and remember that Hirsch had a UCC filing on all the assets. We kind of forgot about that. In what the is that? The, uh, it means that they uh, have a filing with the state of Arizona that they own what's in that building. It's okay. called a, a universal uh, commercial code or whatever. And Hirsch is going, uh, wait a minute. Uh, you can lock us out, but we own what's in the building. And that's when a guy named Robert Barnes showed up <laughs> before your time. suit and tie? <laughs> no, he showed up. And moving, and moving vans showed up. And oh, okay. uh, they uh, cleaned the building out. So I'm thinking, I own a building. I can rent this thing, even though the economy sucked. I own 25,000 square foot building. And that was always the plan. Will we evict Hirsch? You know, whatever. And... Uh, a week after they cleaned it out, uh, somebody stole all the copper out of the building. Oh, no. The electric. Electric. Gone. This was a big building that had uh, 440 volts, big, you know, big hunking, you know, uh, huge. Because it, it, it was a manufacturing plant before I bought the building. And uh, I had let the insurance go as far as the contents because there was no contents. Empty building. I had insurance on uh, – I didn't have insurance on theft. Now, to me, selling the copper was vandalism, but they, the insurance company said, no, we're not going to. How was, much uh, copper was in there dollar-wise? I'm just curious. 
there was an older building, and so to, it was some some of it was grandfathered in. Uh, I got a quote; it was going to be half a million dollars to bring the building back up to code and rewire the entire building. I mean, these guys went in one night, and it's I don't know if in your area if that was a big business. I think it still think is. It was but these guys would come in. <laughs> yeah, right. Was it the Hirsch Mafia? Sauce. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you never know. Hey, <laughs> we know a guy. <laughs> you know. All of a sudden, I'm with the building. That has no copper, no power. They, they took all the copper even out of the power box, the breaker boxes. They took it. Every, they, they, they did it. And that was a big deal back then. Uh, and I could see they had chop saws at night you know, from the roof. All the, a lot of the lines went across the roof. They just chopped it, you know, a big deal. And so uh, I tell the bank, you know, I, <laughs> I can't rent this thing. I didn't make a payment for a year. And the bank would be calling. But at that time, bank guys were churning because of the economy and nobody could borrow money. The housing market crashed. Bankers were taking back buildings and stuff right and left. We were just one more guys that had a building that we couldn't make a payment on. And so uh, after about a year, uh, and, I, and the, the banks keep threatening me, me uh, somebody that had a, a nonprofit company uh, made the bank an offer of like, $900,000. That building was appraised before this whole thing happened at about $4 million. I paid about a million and a half for it. So it, I, that was going to be my cash cow. You know, I mean, I'll sell it if I have to. No copper, you can't sell it. And so uh, the bank sold it to a nonprofit. And I had a personal guarantee on the note. And I'm going, I'm screwed. They're going to come after me. And the bank let me off the personal guarantee. Mm. I, have no, I have no idea why. To this day. I don't know why the bank let me off, other than they felt sorry for me. So I went from having a, a you know, when we locked the company out, I went to working from home. And, uh, wow. you know, uh, had to deal with some taxes and some other issues. So whatever money I had kind of got eaten up, you know. And then uh, a couple irate customers that had T-Jits that had money on them, that I told them, call Hirsch. They own 80% of the building, of the company. You call them. And uh, so we had a kind of a falling out, but that's, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's a long way around. Okay. But Uh, that was the rise and fall. And that's why, like I said, there's a couple guys in this industry who, who grew real fast after that. Cause we were the, we were the, we were the king of the inkjet film. We were selling millions in inkjet film. As I told you, we were the guys, we had a whole department selling inkjet. We had cartridges for the 4,800, the 4,880 inkjet, the black ink uh, for film output. We were selling rips right and left. You know, and, uh, you know, so it was it was a, a sad story. So I, I started working from home and I kind of missed all that. You know how you have it when the employees want to bang on your door. Where do you want the rocks? And you tell them in the rock pile. I kind of missed that that whole camaraderie of employees. And so I've been working from home now ever since then. I, I have a little office in my house. I sell I sell my fast films now as T-seps. I still sell it. I do separations every day. I mean, you know, I kind of lost my savings, lost my uh, my uh, my cash cow, and so I do steps every day. I'm 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 active, but nobody sees me. I quit making videos. I got tired of that. I probably got older, so I decided not to see myself on camera anymore. You know, but I and then I formed the did band. Did you start selling the videos? <laughs> did you sell the videos and the DVDs after that, or was that all simultaneous? I did. Doing that all that was still. Time? It wasn't pre-YouTube, but it was still, people were still buying DVDs. I mean, even in the heyday, we, we would sell, I bet we'd sell six or $700,000 in DVDs a year. Not, not compared to the T-Jet, it was nothing, but it was, it was still a cash cow for us, the DVDs. But then it became, 
you know, now today, like I can't, I couldn't give away a DVD now. I quit selling them a few years ago because nobody buys DVDs. Even my book, you know, how to print t-shirts, sure. which, which was my, my other, not a cash cow, but it was kept my, my name out there. You know, I, I quit publishing it uh, four years ago because to, to publish a book like that, it costs about six bucks to print it, but you got to buy 5,000 books, you know, to get that price. I, yeah, the, in know. the heyday, it was nothing. It was nothing. Write the check for 30000 to the printer when we had money. But now, yeah. you know, and, and Amazon was selling. I had. To, I was going through, through uh, uh, the guys at Screen Printing Magazine were selling it to Amazon for me. Uh, they were doing two or 3000 a year, and then it dropped down to 1000 a year, and then it dropped down to 500 a year. And so it's now an ebook. You know, there's, there's just people don't. I don't. I like a book, by the way. I'm very old school. I like to look at a book. But people now, they want to go to YouTube and look at their phone and, you know, all that. So, so you, uh, you have a lot of the, uh, these points that are things that maybe you stumbled on. But I feel like you have a lot of successes, especially in just this story. And, and this is only like a five year segment out of, you know, out of your 50 years of being in the space that we're focusing on. But like, what were, what were some of the big points? And Farrakh and I talk a ton about pivotal moments or things that like really shift the trajectory of the business. What would you say are some of those success aspects that, that you guys hit or you did really well? Probably fast films, my separation software. Uh, we did classes for years. We started doing classes in 1979 because my first trade show was an ISS show. And uh, I was always that kind of geeky kid. I did a magic act. And, you know, I, I was in a, I was, I've been in a, I was in a band. I'm in a band again, as you probably know. But it was, I was never afraid to talk to people, but I have definitely my, my shy side. And when Impressions came out, we had just writ- written our book, my wife and myself, 1978. Impressions came out, Bill Windsor, first trade show. We sent them a news release because they had Impressions Magazine then, first issue. And they called, would you come and speak at the show? We fly to Dallas on a red eye. We haven't traveled much, didn't have any money. And we, we show up at their show, and there's 500 people in the room. Because I, I was a rock and roller, and I played at one of the hot teen clubs before when I was first married, I had no, I had no problem getting up in front of people and talking. And so, but it was 500 people. So I remember my wife and I, on after I did like a three-hour seminar, we're like going, this is good. <laughs> we could do videos. <laughs> we, could, we could, you know, promote the book. We could speak at shows. That was probably what really got me going was that education was where, where people were dying mm-hmm. to know because at Content that point, there were no books or anything. Yeah. And so, but it's all yeah. about just yeah. I, I, the marketing, you know? I, I think what's interesting is like, you had some interesting things when I, when I look at this story, like the T-Jet itself that just sold on white shirts worked perfectly, pushed the envelope a little bit and then kept pushing it. It's like, have you ever thought like, what if I just sold really good white printer DTGs that don't print white ink? Like they only print on whites or like just T-seps, you know, oh, is that not... Yes. Like that, I look at that, I'm like, yeah, but this was the early 2000s, Scott. Fresher. Well, but, but yeah. that's, a, that's what I'm going to tell you to F off if you, if you yeah. cross this path. That's where a serial entrepreneur screws up. A serial entrepreneur can't let it, can't let it lie. I think back though, we were doing, like I said, four or $5 million in film and rips clean business, no complaints, no bitches, and I let that market dry up because I got so tight for money. I, I got cut off by my film supplier. And then, 
guys like Ryan Ed, who were my dealers back then, you know, they're, they're picking up the pieces from Scott Fresner as he's slowly crashing and burning because a serial entrepreneur, that's why if, if anybody watching this wants some advice, if you're a serial entrepreneur, you're right. I should have stuck selling, selling film and, and selling supplies. Yeah, it was a clean business and it was a profitable business. I couldn't let it lie. You know, it's just that you said it. I just said yeah, that next I, saying, what I, if we could I, do I this, it, you know? I think like I deal with that quite a bit and it's like, we're pushing the envelope. Ooh, we're bringing in DTF. Ooh, we need to get this. Ooh, we're going to try doing this now. It's really hard to say no. It's and a disease. Say, like, what if I just do a, what if I do a, I just do a really good job at this and nothing else. Yeah. And it's, no, it's really hard to do. Like Bruce, we talk about hard. like if we were to develop an, an app or something, it's like pick one tiny thing and only do that and don't do yeah. anything else. No. Right. No, it's, um, uh, it's, you can't so. turn it off, I think, <clears throat> you know. So, I mean, look look at the film business. There was nobody selling rips. Everybody was doing, back in 2000, there was nobody doing, it was all doing vellum off of a, off of a laser printer or doing cameras. People still had cameras back. I used to teach cameras in my, in my workshops. And I go to a show and a guy named Jeff Baxter shows me a film off an inkjet printer. And I'm going, wow, that's like a camera shot. Nobody was selling it. And so I ran into Catalink. I found those guys on a web search. And I tell them, I think I can sell your product called PhotoScript, which they had a little little rip that they had bought from a guy or from named Dave Evans in the UK. And uh, it was designed to do uh, ink shading, color matching, and stuff, but it did halftone dots. And I tried their PhotoScript. I said, send me, send me a copy. I say to these guys, I think I can sell this. I've, I've told this story. I've told, I know, we're, I know I'm rambling, but... I remember going to my wife who handled the money and saying, I need to buy an Epson 3000 printer so I can test this thing called a rip. I think I can sell a few of them, but I need 1200 bucks to buy this Epson 3000. And that was a lot of money back then. That's when we were in the 500,000 range, you know, per year, only a couple of employees. Were, were you a software developer or were you building Not at this? All. I'm just not just repurposing Catalink? Like- repurposing it, yeah. So I, I get this... Mm. Ripped from soft from Catlink and the Epson 3000 printed real dense black, you know, had had the best black in the world, and it does halftone dots. And Catlink's going, well, we don't know what a halftone dot is. We're inkjet guys. We sell to the guys that do color printing. I said, I want to buy this rip from you, but I want the exclusive worldwide because I can sell a, a few of these. And uh, sure, you know, so I was buying the rip for a hundred and a half from Catlink, selling it for five hundred bucks. And I ran across a company that uh, the that made the film and I was buying film by the boxes and selling film. And I go, well, I want to buy bigger quantities. We got to buy what's called a jumbo roll. Jumbo roll was like 60 inches by, I don't know, hundred thousand feet or something. Big roll of film. You got to buy that. I found a guy called a converter who would convert it and chop it up and put it in boxes for me. But I was the first guy to ever, to bring that to the market. I mean, there were other rips out there, Wasatch and stuff, but I was the first guy that really took it to t-shirt printers and said, here's your solution for your, for your laser printer from Zante that I helped them sell thousands. I have, that- <laughs> Scott, I have two Zante screenwriters. You have, you have a screen My business partner will not let me throw them away throw because away, he's like, he goes, they do not make those anymore. And they God were $3, forbid, I know. He goes, God forbid. He goes, like, I know. he used to buy parts because he loved them so much. That's really funny. Well, people would buy three or four of them off eBay or whatever for the parts. Yeah, eBay, you know? totally. Yeah. So when I first saw the first Zante, you know, because I, 
I'm a, again, entrepreneur. When I first saw my first Zante, I'm telling those guys, I can sell that. You need to send me one so I can have it in my school. And I'd show it in my classes. And I know people would go home and they half the class would buy a Zante. Uh, but it was two or $3,000. So I was able to show people that for a $1,000 printer back then, like an Epson 3000 and a rip, you're going to get camera quality, really dense black. And so uh, I should I should have stuck with that. That would have been the perfect deal. But I was the first to really bring in affordable rip. But you asked me what was the turning point. Uh, Guy named Charlie Fassini, who owns AccuRib Separation Studio, uh, mm-hmm. a piece of we work. A piece of, a piece of work. <clears throat> How's that? Huh? You can edit that out if you want. <laughs> but Charlie, you're probably not me. listening to this. But if you are, you can cop on the pod. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he he brought out, uh, but he brought out a, a software yeah. for separation. No, it was before that. Uh, spot process. He brought that out, and it was fifteen thousand dollars. And I'm thinking. The average screener is not going to spend that. He priced it based on how embroidery software was back then. Maybe it's since I don't know embroidery. Maybe software for embroidery is the same mm. now, but back then it was really expensive. Wings you know? modular, yeah. Yeah, so he priced it like that. And I met him at a show, and he said, I don't want to sell the small guys. you know. And, I'm, and I've been teaching separations in the camera and the computer for years. And there were so many things I did the same time over and over. I did the same routine over and over again. Here's how I make an underbase. da 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 underbase. And so... I looked at his program, 15 grand. I thought, well, hell, I could do that in Photoshop. I could just record actions, you know, the, my, my mouse steps. Came out with Fast Films for $1,500 and sold 1,000 of them my first year. And where Charlie didn't want to sell to wow. the small guys, but he's, you know, trying to sell $15,000 software. He sold one at 15 yeah, well, probably so. I know. What's that? <laughs> All I got to sell is one. <laughs> so, so I sold... Um, whatever, a million bucks worth of software my first year in fast films. And that was a defining moment because that gave me real cash. And that was, that was a gravy train to then do other things. And yeah. so fast if, films if you can was, sell you know, things that don't have, if, if you can sell things that don't have a physical product, the margins on them are much better. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I love it. Like, even though then we, even though then we sold, we sold, we sold CDs for fast films back then, but now everything's downloadable. So there's nothing I have no, I have yeah. no real cost for the product, you know, well, Bruce knows about that stuff. Do, do you think it, do, do you think it's better to be the first mover in the space or somebody like the second or third and follow on to, to like iterate on I hated something? The, I hated it seems to be like the there's second so much that you had to figure I know. So it's more of I like look, I look. you love that. You love that first, you know, mover advantage. I do. I think it's my you ego. You love to probably. do the innovation. You yeah. Know, all that. Okay. Yeah. Even now, you know, I told you we're going to talk about bands. That. You know, I, I I like to be the first, but 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 if I look back, you know, I I look back and think, was it right to be the first? You know, because look where look where it got me. You know, I mean, so. Uh, but I, I, I have this, I have this Pink Floyd band. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about my band real quick. Just, just, you know, I got a band. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> oh, shine on shine Floyd. On, I, I, we have the best, we have the, yeah, go to shine on Floyd.com. We have the best, I have the best Pink Floyd tribute band in probably the U S believe it or not, because I'm Scott Fresner and I want to have CFO the best. going to love this. I'm going to send it to him. You know, and, and it, we are playing large performing arts centers. We're doing a tour of uh, Nashville and Memphis this summer. We are the real deal. And if you if you like Pink Floyd, just check us out, shineonfloyd.com. But the point is- Are you going to be in most, Chicago, Scott? 
Uh, not yet, but but we have to figure out how to be in Chicago for one of your one of, one of your deals. <laughs> so, but, yeah, or but the or, point, or uh, you should play at uh, you should play at like uh, ISS. I would, but you the problem is the my band is now making compared to most bands. We we charge anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars a gig, so that's the problem. Oh, we're we not had, a bar uh, band. Oh. Who did we? Uh, wow. Mark okay. McGrath. Um, Sublime with Rome. But that, I think that's Julio the real last deal, though. See, I'm not, oh, I, I was there. Uh, well, no, you. Didn't, I, I was at ISS when uh, when Ryan Ed. I don't know if you were involved with that. He had Sublime yeah. and who yeah, he yeah. Had. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great show. Yeah. What a stage! McGrath, what a stage! And then what a stage! Coolio. Yeah. See, I'm playing on yeah. stages like that so, now, so and you know. But the point is, because I'm a marketer, most bands would not go from zero to where I'm at, including having a pandemic pandemic in the middle. We went from being a local bar band to now we have lasers, lights, smoke, big circle screen like Floyd. We have the whole stage show. I got a huge yeah. trailer with all the gear that we go Scott to. Scott goes but zero be- to one hundred. I that's that's they're lucky to have a guy like me. It's my it's band, you. but they're they're yeah, lucky exactly. because most bands are going. Well, I made a hundred bucks tonight at the local bar you know and so it's it's funny that the, the band has become my my gunslinger my that's the word i was gunslinger. looking for from the wild west that is scott gunslinger. Fresner, the gunslinger, gunslinger. 2003 to 2008 scott yeah, if yeah. you were to look into the industry where is it okay so you obviously have seen it now you're kind of sitting back and watching it a little bit if if we were to write that down today where is it going three four years from now we're taking our bets yeah, I don't know because because I thought um, when I was doing the T-Jet, I was going to kill screening. I mean, I really did think that screening was dead. Nobody wants to do separations. My separation business was dead. My film business would be dead. I was going to kill it all. I, I was convinced of that. But now I see, you know, 18 years later, uh, tw- tw- no, 12 years later, nothing has changed. But I do think if you look at the shows now, uh, you guys are probably at Printing United, which I thought was a bus, you know, for, for t-shirt guys, you know, for me, yeah, but you've got, I, I couldn't make you got that oval one. jet, you got, you know, digital squeegee, you've got all these guys doing ink jetting. And I think it's picking up, uh, brother's got a bigger machine, you know, Epson keeps bringing out a bigger machine. I think that'll erode it, but I'm not sure where it'll be because screen printing seems to not want to go away. You know, I think people are, you know, you're a screener, you know, it's old as new. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, what's what's old is new. I I think I mean, when you look at DTF, it's still an inkjet printer just flipped around with a with powder adhesive on film. It's not like it's the text that much different. Right. No, that's what just the orientation of it. That's what confuses me. Why it's I don't see people banging on it as much as they did with DTG as far as head clogs and stuff like that. It's the same technology. I think what we'll say is it it works on any I knocked uh, it transfers work on any fabric right so yeah. they work on polys yeah. um right. and there's no pre-treat um right. and the ability to print a digital transfer now like supercolor i mean they have in the last five years i can't wait to talk to rum in five years and see if he 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 crushed it or i'm just kidding. yeah the, you know you look at guys this. like supercolor who came out of, out of no, <laughs> i shouldn't say nowhere but those guys are like the, they're like on top of the game right now, you know. So it's amazing. I, yeah. I just, hang on, hang on, don't go away. Be, because I'm a little new to DTF, I got a shirt sample at uh, at Printing United. This is a this is a DTF from Equipment Zone. Nice print, but it's still to me being old school. It still has such a transfer feel. It just right. It, it's so everything you said. No pre-treat, you know. Full color, you know, but I, yeah. it feels like a step back because I, I, when I was a printer, 
how many times have I said I was the biggest guy? <laughs> Pardon me. When I was a printer, I was making transfers and we were selling transfers around the country. And so it feels to me being a transfer guy when I was mm. a screen printer, it, it, it's, it's like a step back. But that's just, yeah. you know, maybe the market doesn't care, you know. Uh, you're doing yeah. DTF, aren't you? We do DTF for a specific reason to do nameplates on the back of shirts for college athletes around the country. And so for a, we don't have to cut vinyl or weed or anything like that. Yeah. And oh my we God. can, yeah. we don't take inventory risks and anything like that. And for our market, it serves its purpose. Right. And I think yeah. that's where like, what, what does the customer bear for touring musicians? It's much different. Um, yeah. I actually got, I, I was talking to the CEO of Printful yesterday and they were talking about this, you know, the accounts that they have that are massive brands. And I was kind of like, is DTG, like I was kind of knocking DTG and, they're like the the market's bear is much different than perhaps it was, um, but I think there's still something to the purist, the, the screen printer, the the night owls out there. Yeah, that's probably where I feel like maybe I've maybe the boat has the, the boat has sailed. I mean, I don't like this, and I think you would probably not have this be your business where it, it's there's not a soft. Feel, yeah, you know, it feels so. a little bullet bulletproof. Yeah, yeah bulletproof for yeah. sure. So I don't know. But uh, Scott, we're gonna have to do a part two because I think at some point, Bruce. Um, cause I've learned a ton today. Um, no, this is, are you going to be at Long Beach too? I'm going to go for uh, a day. It's a, it's a, I'm not speaking and I have my band, yeah. my band was my new outlet, you know, but so I didn't even fill out the form this year. You know, I decided I'm not going to feel, so I'm going to go for a day is the point. I'm going to fly over. I'll hey, be there if you, all day. If, if you yeah. go with no obligations, you can do whatever you want. Right. Um, I just show up. You know? I think some of my, like, it's really fascinating to, you know, to listen to you, um, to listen to like when Charlie talks or like rich and, and, and just the, just the amount of like life that you all have been through and business. Um, I mean, when you say 2008, like I got my license then I was in high school. So (laughs) we have, yeah, Bruce, Bruce was just in college. So like we have, it, it, it allows us to appreciate what y'all have done, 100%. but um, some of these videos, some of these have actually been like our best viewed and best listened to. So it, hey, we need to we need to do more of these. These these are fantastic, I, and, and we I'd appreciate be happy. It I mean, time. I have a list of people that crossed my path that are now well known in the industry. That if it wasn't for Scott Fresner, well, even you, you made a bunch of work, brand names, and then yeah. you I'm gonna you made a bunch of brand names, and then you gave them the first names, and I was like, uh, we need to. Coldessi is a person. Yeah, <laughs> we need them. I mean, you know? I mean, even 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 workhorse. You guys know the guys at Workhorse. You know they've been around well, for a while. Well, notice yeah. Scott also said Riley Hopkins. He said Riley. Yeah, he just brought up Riley. Listen, Stahls, I remember Coldessi, in, yeah, I was like, I remember, Riley, and then he. You know, <laughs> I remember in 1979, I'm at a trade show in Florida, SGIA, and I need a printing press for my school because my wife and I started our school, and you know, I go down and there's a guy with long hair. Riley had long hair one time. And I didn't know Riley, but I told him that I had a school, had a book, you know, and uh, I need a press. And Riley goes, uh, where do we send it to? You know, it was that it was that simple? And so Riley and I became really good friends. I saw Riley at the ISS show when the when the Sublime was there at that concert. Uh, I think Ryanette flew Riley in because Riley is very internet. He's not very internet savvy, and but Riley became a very good personal friend. You know, and you know. By the way, I, I know you got to go. I think that the the average person doesn't know who Riley Hopkins is. You know, they got the the Riley Press, but they probably don't know. I'm not sure if maybe Ryanet has anything on their website about Riley. But here they're buying a Riley Press and a Riley Dryer. They have no idea who Riley Hopkins is. 
you know, and I think it's a crime. I think he's a guy you need to get on your show, but you're going to have to get his I wife see. Val to get, to, to get him on the computer. But he would be a good, he would be a great interview because, you know, um, here's a guy who back then you had, you had either a Hopkins or a Vastex or a Richardson. You had three presses back in like, you know, 1978, 79. There was only three brands out there that you, that you would buy, you know, so. Let's do it. Wait, Scott, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, Scott at tbiz, T-B-I-Z, network.com. Or Scott at shineonfloyd.com. <laughs> I love Darn. the plug. If you need a Pink Don't Floyd stop it. cover band, they're not cheap, though, <laughs> if but you need a really co- good. If you need a cover band. Yeah, but we're um, really good. No, Scott, this is thank fantastic. You the, thank you for the time, for the stories, for the honesty. Thanks for being a, uh, a Wild West sharpshooter. A gunslinger, um, a gunslinger. Gunslinger, gunslinger. There we and go. Bruce, but Bruce, but Bruce, you've <laughs> done well. Bruce, Bruce, you've done well. You came out of out of nowhere, I think, and uh, and uh, look at you now. <laughs> don't let it get to his head. Don't let it, don't let it get yeah, to his head. No, I think there's. You know, I mean, you see the space. I think it has still a lot of really neat opportunity. So, oh, that's for um, sure. You know, this is cool. And, and, Re- reach out to Scott. Yeah. Say hi at Long Beach. Uh, appreciate the stories. Thanks, guys, for listening to Printavo Produces Podcast. Bruce from Printavo, Stephen Farragut at Campus Inc. We appreciate you. We appreciate you for listening. We'll see you in the next one.